Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 124. Psalm 124. uh, This is the fourth psalm in the Song of Ascents that we're going through. I will read along. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. When the flood, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this psalm, we consider the context in which it was written in the history of Israel and all the various events in their history, and that this could characterize or be attributed to. We think of all the dangers that we have escaped in our own life. And Lord, we, we are encouraged to look back at your guiding hand, your protection, your provision, your grace, which has delivered us. And not just in the physical circumstances, but more importantly in the spiritual aspects of our lives as sinners. You have delivered us. And you continue to deliver us and guide us. So Lord, as we look at this psalm, help us to glean from it. Help us to um, learn from it. Help us to be encouraged by it that we may um, be strengthened in our faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There's a saying that's been used by many believers and unbelievers alike. Um, when seeing another person go through a tragedy or a misfortune or some calamity, um, and that's uh, that phrase, and you probably have used it and heard it used before. There but for the grace of God go I. And it's, it's so common that it's, it's in our culture. I've heard unbelievers say that. I've heard um, people of various Christian backgrounds say it that really weren't Christian. But nonetheless, they heard the phrase before. They understood the phrase. Um, and they've used that phrase, um, seeing uh, certain circumstances, uh, Usually it's a a homeless person. You see somebody down now on the street or on the side of the road in the cold and you say, there but for the grace of God go I. Or um, someone that um, may be a family turmoil or relationship struggles, um, financial um, calamity. You think there but for the grace of God go I. And, And it's true. In most of our lives, um, 
if we're honest. We can see, and we can see many points in our lives where there was crossroads, um, so to speak. And, uh, but for the grace of God, we would have either suffered calamity, um, our lives could have been shipwrecked, we could have um, gone down a different path, a different road. And that phrase, it's interesting, it goes back, it's attributed to a person in the 1500s, and um, one author writes this, it says, they say this, uh, the story is that the phrase was first spoken by the English preacher and martyr John Bradford, um, who lived from 1510 to 1555. He is said to have uttered the variant of the expression, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford, when seeing criminals being led to the scaffold. He saw these criminals being led to be hung, and uh, he said, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. But he would later be burned at the stake in 1555, and um, being martyred for his faith as a preacher um, in England, and he even, during his death, he, he said this to uh, someone close by, he said, we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. But he understood, even seeing the criminals, that but for the grace of God, that would be me. Um, not just being caught and being um, executed, but being a criminal. That, uh, many of us could look back at our lives and as teenagers, as young adults, and uh, maybe some of the friends we had, some of the people we hung out with, uh, maybe it was in our, our job or our school, and, and uh, you know, they went down one path, and if we would have stuck closely with them, we would have gone with them as well. But for some reason, we ended up um, you know, going down another path. We, we, um, for some reason, that friendship fell through, or that job fell through, or we uh, transferred to another school, or whatever the case may be. We see God's providence in our lives, and it's evidences of His grace. This phrase is also um, could be attributed to um, what the Apostle Paul said about his life in 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 9 to 10, he says this to the Corinthian church, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so Paul sees, um, in a sense, says that phrase, uh, there but for the grace of God go I, and he uses it not just in the, the negative kind of sense that that if, if God had not intervened, I would have destroyed myself. But he also uses it in the positive sense that by God's grace, I was able to do what I, I've done for God. Um, his grace not only delivered me, but His grace enabled me to do great things for Him. And it's His grace that continues to enable me and empower me and guide me and even um, present the opportunities before me. To walk in them. There's one uh, uh, Christian blogger who he, he was commenting about this, this phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. And 
And oftentimes we use it in the context of calamity, of uh, someone going through a misfortune. And we, we think, but for the grace of God go I. And that's true, but he goes on to say um, that he wants to think of grace more in the positive sense. That, you know, but for God's grace, I could not do what I do for God. And his grace will abound as he promises. And he will promise to give more grace. And so I look forward to the future um, with grace in mind. Some people, you know, they um, think about God's grace to get them through the day or, or, or they look forward to um, another phase of life and, and, and think, well, I don't know what, I'll be able to handle that. Um, usually younger people say, I, I don't know, you know, if I'll be successful in my marriage or as a parent or um, as a grandparent or whatever, in a certain new job or whatever, but God will give us that grace when the time comes to um, successfully um, handle that trial or the um, task that He has given us. He will guide us. In this, this whole psalm, it's really about the grace of God. And it is in that context of calamity, of trial, of um, possible destruction, that but for the grace of God, uh, the psalmist would be destroyed, but for the grace of God, Israel would have been destroyed. And we see thankfulness all throughout this psalm. We see gratitude. We see praises for God's grace. And one, one commenta- commentator writes this, he, he says, This is a thanksgiving hymn for the community, particularly for an occasion in which God's people have been under threat but have been delivered. It is conceivable that David wrote this psalm in response to some deliverance, such as those in 2 Samuel 5, but the words are quite general, general, applicable in a wide variety of settings. God's people have known many occasions on which this psalm provides just the right hymn. The implication of the psalm being now a song of ascents seems to be that the faithful would sing it in connection with their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The deliverance of the whole people allows them to continue journeying there. And that's the point we we see in the um, superscription above that is a song of ascents and it's of David. And we um, there's some more liberal commentators that question whether or not David wrote that, but we have no reason to question that at all because right here it says David wrote this. And so we could think of several instances in David's life, but even then, we, you look at all the Psalms of David and it's hard to pinpoint what David is actually um, talking about, what, what um, I guess, event or circumstance in his life. In many of his Psalms, you could picture... Um, most of the circumstances we read about in his life. But it's not just his life, but um, you know, the history of Israel, most of the life of Israel, or you know, just a, a believer's life. Because we all face similar trials and challenges, though they aren't specifically the same. Um, the fears, anxieties, worries that come um, out of you know, walking through this life 
are similar. The, the answer is similar. To look up, to look to God, to look to His grace, to remind yourself of His grace, of His deliverance in the past, that you would look forward to His deliverance in the future. And as it says, this is a song of a sense written um, for that pilgrimage to the feasts, written um, to sing to one another or recite to one another on the way to Jerusalem to encourage one another, to remind one another of how God has delivered them in the past and how God has upheld Israel. And in this song of a sense, we see the psalmist glorify the grace of God in two primary expressions. You can split the psalm easily in half from verses 1 to 5 and then 6 to 8. And in those um, two uh, parts, we see two expressions concerning the grace of God in David's life as, as well as that of Israel. And first we see the psalmist's reflections on God's grace. The psalmist's reflections on God's grace or David's reflections on God's grace. But whatever the case may be, even from the psalmist David or from Israel, speaking to Israel, it is a call to reflect upon God's grace. In verses 1 to 5, it says, If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who is on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. You see, he, he reflects upon God's grace first in uh, His grace in, in His guardianship. As God is, is guarding Israel and David as He is acting as guardian over them. We see His grace in the face of enemies. And we see His grace in the face of dangers. Verse 1, His grace in His guardianship. And not just God as a guardian, as um, you know, guarding Israel, but as um, in, in more of the sense of, um, think of like a foster parent or a parent-child relationship. The guardian. The legal guardian. The legal guardian over Israel. And, and this, is, this is great grace because in their context, yes, um, all the nations around them, all the peoples um, had a God. And some several gods. But only Israel had the one true God. They only worshipped the one true God. All the nations, they worshipped dumb idols. Idols which could not deliver. And yet they still sacrificed to them. They still worshiped them. But small little Israel had um, the one true God to deliver them, to worship Him, to follow Him. The creator of the universe. The legal guardian of Israel in a, in a sense. This points back because even... Um, as David begins the psalm, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, pointing to him as the creator, but then um, he goes, let Israel not now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. 
pointing back to um, God establishing them as a nation. That he was always their God. Not, not just the God of all peoples, not just the God of Israel, but intimately, personally, in a sense, fatherly. Let me see this. Turn to Deuteronomy 7. And in Deuteronomy 7, we see, um, in a sense, God's, the, the, the charter of Israel. It's almost as if, um, you can maybe say, the, kind of the um, legal adoption or the reminder of their belonging to God, that Moses writes this, these are words which um, God spoke to Moses to write down for them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. This is exactly what God did. And notice how even in that that, um, passage that It had nothing to do with who Israel was or what they would do or what they could do because they were fewest in number. There was nothing um, inherently special in Israel that would um, commend God to them. God chose them because He chose them. That's it. He loves them because He loves them. And it's the same with us. God chose us because He chose us, and He loves us because He loves us, and His love originates from Him to us. So we see His grace in His guardianship over Israel and and over the church, over His people, that, that He has called us to be His people. And as His people, He guides us, and He is on our side. This could be... Uh, phrased a little bit different, even though this is clearly in this psalm that, that the Lord was on our side. It, it is, could be um, phrased a different way that by God's grace, we are on His side. He, he doesn't, in a sense, stoop down to do whatever we would ask, but um, He has changed us so that we um, align ourselves with His will and we do what He would want, and what he wants is always best. So we see his grace and his guardianship, but we also see in, in verses 2 to 3, his grace in the face of enemies. That David writes, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. 
when their anger was kindled against us. And it's interesting, when they rose up against us. We look at all the history of Israel from uh, even you could even go back to the time of Abraham, but especially since their captivity in Egypt and on, they always had enemies. The peoples were always against them. One commentator, he, he just writes this brief sentence. He says, he says uh, commenting on that phrase, when men rose up, he says, a general statement which could cover the history of Israel from Abraham to David. It's just a, a general statement. When, when people rose up, when men rose up, when the, the nations rose up against us. Something that happened time and time again. Edom and Moab and Assyria. The Philistines. The Babylonians. You know, and even later on, the... Um, Greece and Rome. It was part of Israel's history. Always rising up against them. Swallowing them alive. And just this term, swallowing us up alive. As if um, there was nothing we could do. If God had not intervened, if He had not saved us, if He had not um, stepped in, would have been nothing we could do. And just this phrase, swallow us up alive, it points back to another point in Israel's history, a point in time in which they did see someone swallowed up alive. Not just by uh, you know, an animal, but by the earth itself. This points back to the time of Korah's rebellion in, in the wilderness in Numbers uh, chapter 16, you can turn there in Numbers chapter 16 and verses 28 to 34. Um, there's this account of you know, Korah and, and, and um, some other men rose up and, and rebelled against, were grumbling and rebelling against Moses, um, uh, in a sense um, usurping his uh, leadership. And uh, so he... Moses um, goes to God. In Numbers chapter 16, verse 28, says this, And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down, to, down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly." And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they say, lest the earth swallow us up. This is what David's pointing back to. At Korah and all these people, though they had no clue what God would do, in a sense, they probably you know, felt like they could um, 
express all their grievances and grumblings and complainings and and rebellion towards Moses. And, And that they could maybe somehow turn the people against Moses. And that they would maybe get away scot-free. Or maybe, even if they were punished, it would be a light punishment. But there's a sense that they weren't just killed as God would kill other people in the wilderness, but the whole earth just swallowed them up so that there was nothing left of them. It just covered them over. And there was nothing they could do about it. They couldn't run away. They couldn't go anywhere. It just swallowed them up. This is, this is what David's talking about the enemies. That, that they were in, in such a place that their enemies would have swallowed them up alive. That's a picture he's, he's trying to express. And oftentimes in Israel's history, there was nothing they could do either. There was, there was threats in, from the nations around them. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, from their, their deliverance out of Egypt. Egypt was so powerful, the superpower at that time, that God had to deliver them. Many of the other conflicts they had throughout their history, there was nothing they could do. God intervened unless God delivered them, and and oftentimes God does this to show that, to show His power, to show His grace, to show us that, you know, it's my grace. You're upheld by my grace and my provision and my protection. In his commentary, Old Testament scholar Willem van Gemmeren, he writes this. He says this, The phrase had been on our side, that, that phrase had been on our side, is the past tense of Emmanuel. God is with us. Thus the community confesses that God has been with them in their past history. It's interesting. It, it had not, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, it, it, it's a past tense of Emmanuel, that God was with us. We, we see Emmanuel um, first in, in Isaiah, but then um, we think about it in the context of the new covenant. But looking back, you know, to see in Israel's past that God was with us in a different sense. And even in you know, the theology of the angel of the Lord, which is um, a, a pre-incarnate Christ, that God was with them, delivering them, fighting their battles for them, and, and, and almost even orchestrating those circumstances so that they could see his deliverance. And so we see his grace in his guardianship, his grace in the face of enemies, and then we see his grace in the face of dangers. Verses 4 to 5, Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. And there's a lot of, um, you know, we think of the flood and, Immediately, we think back to the flood narrative, but this is more along the lines of a flash flood, of a raging river. And certainly, in, you know, it, it points to um, 
the, the climate of Israel, and, and particularly southern Israel in the Negev, and, and, um, that it was dry and, and oftentimes um, there would be uh, flash floods would come when, when, when they would get rain and it would hit the mountains and, and the, the, the ground was so dry and so arid and, and rocky that it wouldn't absorb the water. The water would just come down and it'd create flash floods and, and streams and... Um, you know, I, I, this happens in the, in the southwest of America a lot. Um, but even more so in, in the Negev, in the Sinai. You can see this. I, I've been to places there and, and just see um, where the water had come down and, and washed down boulders and trees and all sorts of things. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, he, he writes this. He says, During the rainy season and when the mountain snow melts, the dry riverbeds in Israel quickly become filled with water and flash floods threaten houses and people. Jeremiah compared the enemy invasions to sudden floods in Jeremiah 47. And Job uses the same image on a personal level. This image of the persecution of the Jews is also seen in Revelation 12. The psalmist feared that the raging waters of persecution would sweep over him and his people and that they would be swallowed up forever. Jeremiah pictured the Babylonian captivity of Israel as Nebuchadnezzar swallowing the nation. But if the Lord is on our side, he will provide a way of escape. This happens in the terrain and it is an object lesson. It is a picture, an illustration of Israel and where they're at in regards to the rest of the nations around them. You know, we, we think of you know, how sudden you know, uh, flash floods, and, and, and here we don't really see it as much. If we lived in the southwest, you, you could see um, warning signs all over. You see it um, even in modern-day Israel, wherever there's a, a, a desert climate like that and the, the danger of flash floods, that they can come quickly and sweep people away. This is to show their, their dangerous predicament. And, and it, it's, it's interesting because Israel was always, their position geographically is that they were a crossroads of the ancient civilizations between um, Egypt and the Fertile Crescent and uh, Europe and, and Greece and Rome. And that they're, in a sense, a, a land bridge. Almost like where, where they were positioned, there was trade routes. And, and, and whoever, in a sense, controlled Israel had, had the, the um, opportunity to gain a lot of money from the trade routes, from the trades as, as middlemen. Um, but also strategically to control that area. And, and, and there was always... Roads and traders going up and down those roads. And, and so they are always, in a sense, a dangerous predicament from the nations around them because it was prime territory. It was key terrain. And it's in, as you know, David writes this, these verses 4 and 5, um, it almost shows a, 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 a dangerous predicament. I think of a couple phrases in and uh, songs that I've, you know, heard just from our own culture and 
I remember growing up, and um, you've probably seen the show in, in an old black and white show in which one character would often, almost every episode, say, you know, what a fine mess you've gotten us into this time. <laughs> almost every episode. I, I believe that was Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> and, um, and I remember one song um, that one of my, my um, high school principal would always sing, um, He'd say, you've picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. <laughs> you know, just those, you know, and, and then another phrase that, you know, um, I, uh, a pastor of mine would say that his father-in-law always said that, he'd always say, you know, there's always something. There's always something. You know, it's kind of like the, the predicament that they're in that, that these, these phrases allude to. It's just like, we're just, unless somebody intervenes, and even more dangerous, it's not just the people, it's not just the enemies, but dangers of this world, the natural dangers. If the Lord had not been on our side, Charles Spurgeon, he writes this in his commentary. He says, here are two ifs. And yet there is no if in the matter. The Lord was on our side and is still our defender and will be so from henceforth even forever. Let us with holy confidence exult in this joyful fact. We are far too slow in declaring our gratitude. Hence the exclamation which should be rendered, O let Israel say, we murmur without being stirred up to it, but our thanksgiving needs a spur. And it is well when some warm-hearted friend bids us say what we feel. Imagine what would have happened if the Lord had left us. And then see what has happened because he has been faithful to us. Are not all materials of a song spread before us? Let us sing unto the Lord. And that, that brings us to the second part of the psalm. We see the psalmist's reflections on God's grace. And now we see the psalmist's response to God's grace. And even as Charles Spurgeon said, there's these two um, ifs, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side in, in the beginning of the psalm, but as he says, there, there's no if in the matter because he's always on our side. And sometimes he brings us right up to the edge of the cliff, you know, and then saves us from dropping off, you know. We take a, a sharp right turn or a sharp left turn and avoid calamity and destruction altogether. And it was all a part of his plan from the beginning. There's no if in the matter. And David goes over, in a sense, these allusions to God's deliverance all throughout the past in his life and in the life of Israel, recorded in their history in the Old Testament or whatever David had at the time, had access to. All of the stories of God's deliverance, and because of those stories, he responds to God's grace in verses 6 to 8. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. He, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. We see 
his response to God's grace in, in, in three parts, three aspects of God's grace. His grace in his protection over his people, his grace in his deliverance, and his grace in his sovereignty. First, his grace in his protection. Verse 6, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. It's almost a, this picture of almost like a growling, um, snarling, wild animal. We think of um, maybe, da- maybe Daniel in the, the lion's den. That, that these these um, beasts were um, put there and they were gathered, they were captured, they were put in this den for the sole um, sake of executions. And certainly they, they were... Um, starved a little bit, so that when a prisoner was thrown in, they, they would snarl and, and they, they would just tear them apart. And it's almost as this picture is like um, Israel um, being you know, put before these snarling wild beasts, or this snarling animal, and, and that could be their, their enemies and the, the nations around them, ready to rip them apart and tear them apart. And yet God holds them back. He protects them. He, he keeps them from destruction. We see his grace in keeping them from destruction, but also his grace to keep danger from them. To, to keep danger from coming close to them. James Montgomery Boyce, he writes this um, in his um, commentary on the Psalms. He writes this, what if God did not intervene to keep us on the path of discipleship? He's, he's using this almost as um, an application to uh, um, uh, the New Testament and our lives as Christians, as believers. He says, what if God did not intervene to keep us on the path of discipleship? We're like Peter who would have fallen away and been lost if Jesus had not interceded for him. Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It is hard to miss seeing that in these words, Jesus does not call Peter by the name he gave him. Peter, meaning stone. He uses his former name to call attention to his weakness. Peter thought he was strong enough to stand by Jesus no matter what might happen. But when the time of testing came, he denied Jesus three times. Peter would have fallen away completely as a result of his failure and humiliation were it not for Jesus' prayers for him. But Jesus did pray. And later, he also came to Peter to recommission him for service. What if God did not preserve our work for Christ? It would all be for nothing. Our lives would be without any meaning. We remember that even Moses, after all his labors, prayed, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, this isn't just um, God's protection in the, the physical, but in the spiritual as well. And certainly, He has to protect us in the physicals in order to protect us for spiritual work. They're, they're, they're both connected. But He shows his grace and his protection. And even as 
James Montgomery Boyce alluded to the spiritual aspects and alluded to Simon and, and Satan desiring to sift him as wheat. Peter was completely oblivious to that fact. And most of us are completely oblivious to the threat of spiritual um, assaults. So many things that happen in the spiritual realm of angels and demons that we're just, we don't know. We don't have the information. We, we, we're not privy to that. The Bible itself only gives us a, a small bit of information concerning angels and demons. But it does say that we are in a war. It does say that Satan roams about like a prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Jesus, in a sense, gave um, Peter a picture of this, which Peter had no clue. But Jesus knew. He knew what Satan wanted to do. And there's a sense that we will go about our Christian lives oblivious to um, the spiritual powers around us. And it's amazing. I, I, I think of, you know, when I get to heaven, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to look back at the tape, so to speak, and see, you know, get the playback and see, whoa, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know. I had no clue. That, and, and sometimes it's, it's the physical dangers, the physical calamities that, you know, I was driving down that road, but um, thankfully, you know, I got in a traffic jam because if I had not been in a traffic jam, I would have been down further and would have been broadsided by a huge truck. But he protects us from spiritual dangers and things, demonic powers, assaults, temptations. Some of us, can, we, we can look back on our, our lives as Christians and, and see a, a brother or sister intervening just in the nick of time before we would have um, fallen headlong into um, some sort of sin or, or, or just physical danger. God protects us. He protects us in ways that we are completely oblivious to. But he protects us nonetheless. And he keeps us from danger. He keeps us from destruction. We, we see his grace and his protection in verse 6. But then in, in verse 7, we see his grace and his deliverance. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. And this is a picture of the fowlers, the, the, the trappers of birds. Um, you think of... Uh, you know, a, a big thing in Israel was the, the, the doves because they, they were commanded um, to offer sacrifices and for those who were poor, um, they were to offer a dove. Well, in order to offer a dove, you have to catch it. Uh, you have to hold on to it. And, and yes, they, they spend some time on the ground, but there, there was a whole, in a sense, a whole industry in Israel for doves. To offer it, you, you can go there and there's, there's, I've seen it, there's, in a sense, caves, places where they have kept doves so that they could sell them for the sacrifices. And in order to do that, they'd have to catch them. And it wasn't just the doves for the sacrifices, but, you know, maybe quail or some other sort of, of bird that they would catch to, uh, to eat 
to sell. In order to do that, they used nets. And they understood where they were, lay the net down on the ground, um, wait until it flies over it or, or put it in a place like a, a, a ravine or, or, or um, uh, close by some trees and spring that net up just in time to catch the bird. And the bird could go nowhere. It was stuck. couldn't fly out. It was trapped. Its fate was, was sealed. And David writes this to show this picture of how God has delivered us. And we have escaped from almost an inescapable trap. And not only have we escaped, but the snare was broken. It was broken. And you could take this, this illustration further um, later on in the New Testament as, you know, um, Peter in jail and the, the, the angel delivers him. Paul and Silas in the Philippian uh, jail and the earthquake. And they're something that just, okay, here we are. We're in prison. That's it. And then God intervenes. He delivers them. He delivers them from inescapable danger. And oftentimes his deliverance is, you know, as the saying goes, just in the nick of time. Just in the nick of time. So that we know. So that we know that it was him all along. And we know that this was a divine intervention. And so David writes about this, to, to glorify God's grace in his deliverance. And then he shows us his grace. He responds to God's grace in his sovereignty in verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And it's almost like somewhat of a bookend to end the psalm. It's, it's not exactly how it begins, but it does begin with the Lord, with the Creator, and then it ends with the Lord, the name of the Lord. Israel was, in a sense, um, given the name, taking upon the name. Even in um, the commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It was taking the name of the Lord was as if we we are called by His name. It, It wasn't just... Um, using God's name in, in a sort of um, bad language or a curse word or you stub your toe or blasphemy. It was that you are called by his name. You take, your, take his name upon you as, as Israelites, as Christians. You're taking his name upon you. And he says, our help is in the name of the Lord, that we are called by his name. We are his people. We belong to him. He made heaven and earth. He, he's sovereign over all peoples and nations. The, the earth is the Lord and all it contains and all the peoples in it in Psalm 24. And yet he calls us by his name. He calls us out of all peoples and all nations. And he is sovereign over heaven and earth. And yet he condescends to us. 
Alan Ross, in his commentary on the Psalms, he, he writes this. He says this about this Psalm. He says, the unique emphasis of this Psalm of praise concerns the complete dependency of the people of God on the Lord. The main idea could then be put this way. When the faithful are delivered from the destructive plans of the wicked by the Lord, their praise must include the acknowledgement that they are completely dependent on Him for their survival. What makes our praise genuine and powerful is the confession that unless the Lord was for us, we would not survive. The Lord is for us, and so we can trust Him for deliverance from danger. The Apostle Paul makes the same point with the rhetorical question, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the ruler of all creation, if the creator of time and space and material is for us, has sent his son to die for us, then who can be against us? That's Paul's argument at the end of Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And though we face trials and dangers and, and, and snares and toils, we rest in the fact that God has orchestrated all those things for our good, for His glory. And He holds us. And He will deliver us in just the nick of time. He will use those trials and challenges and circumstances to um, point us back to Him, to sanctify us, to use us, to proclaim His goodness and His grace. And, And this is one of the main points of the whole psalm is that God had providentially orchestrated all of these circumstances to display His grace and glorify Himself. Through Israel, through the life of David. And there's a sense that as many of David's psalms go, um, a key thing, a key um, point is that David is reminding himself of who God is, of what he has done, and reminding others so that they can praise him. Praise him not only for what he has done and who he is, but what he will do and that he is faithful, that his steadfast love endures forever. We can see this in the New Testament. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. But for the grace of God go I, there go I, as David writes. It's the grace of God that characterizes our whole lives. It's the reason why we are where we're at, why we are the people we are, why we are Christians. It's the reason why, in a sense, God does Almost everything he does. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, in the beginning of the letter, he writes this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything he does throughout the history of redemption, throughout his people, throughout Israel, their history, throughout the history of the church, it's for the praise of his glorious grace. For his glory. To glorify himself in all his attributes, but namely for his people to see his grace, his steadfast love, his mercy, his compassion, his faithfulness. And we see his grace in the most uh, dangerous circumstances of life. See how his grace saves us, how his grace deliver us, delivers us, how his grace guides us. And it's interesting, he uses those circumstances which we would almost always rather not be in <laughs> to glorify himself, to show us his grace. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Heavenly Father, we're so often anxious, worried, become fearful about what may come, about what tomorrow may bring, about the things that we have to do, the um, problems that we have to face, the people that we have to interact with, um, what may happen in our culture, in our nation, and in the world. And yet you call us to trust in you, to hope in you, to rest in you, to take heart that Jesus Christ has overcome this world. And as you know, there's a saying in, in our culture that the devil is in the details. But the truth of the matter, Lord, is that you are in the details. And you work all details according to our good and for your glory. So help us. Strengthen our faith. Help us to rest in you, to trust in you, to hope in you. And to honor you, to glorify you in the midst of our challenges and our trials and all of our circumstances that we would show the world that our God is great and that you watch over us, that you protect us, that you provide for us, and that you know us and that we know you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.